Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management, the only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we're doing another lightning pod where we take three topics, 10 minutes or less, and cover each of them. On this week's docket, we're going to talk about hot takes on budgeting. We're going to talk about college football and the state of coaching buyouts. And then we're going to talk about the looming CPA shortage that we think is on the horizon. Justin, let's first start with budgeting. Is it... and you may not agree with me, but is this an anti-budgeting podcast? How, like, how does FPOG feel about budgeting? Because I feel like we have some strong thoughts there, but it, but it might be a little too strong to say we're anti-budgeting. So what do we want to talk about related to budgeting? Man, that's a tough way to, tough, tough deal to answer this question. Jared, I feel like you and me are personally anti-budget. I'm definitely anti-budget personally. What would you say just your personal thoughts on that? Yes. I'd say, yes, I'm anti-budget. And there's a big asterisk that we're going to unpack, but headline anti-budget. I think there's also an element of this where you can be wired as a person, as a spender or a saver. I am wired as a spender. My wife is also wired as a spender. So we are two spenders uh, in, in a marriage together, which is interesting. Now, the FPOG or the Brownlee Wealth Management answer Ah, man, I I think the best way to say it is we understand just how critical dialing in your expenses is. Uh, Let's go with two stages of life. So critical to dial in your expenses at the beginning of retirement. If you have X amount of dollars and that means that you really shouldn't withdraw more than, you know, a certain percentage of those dollars every year, you better have an understanding of exactly what you're spending. I don't think you need to keep a budget every month for the rest of your life. But if you're retiring and you're 61 years old, there's a lot of merit to tracking expenses for that six month window just to make sure you have a pulse on it. And then at 67, if you buy a house and you move, so you move states, you have a little bit different life scenario. Again, for six months, have a pulse on it. Understand what you're what you're spending. And then the so that's one life stage. The other life stage is if you're 40 and you have a top tax bracket income, well, there's a just massive, there's a seismic difference. And when you can reach financial security, if you save, you know, 50,000 a year compared to saving 250,000 a year. So having a pulse on it for that, uh, again, maybe for a six, nine month window, there's merit there as well. So I think that's the difficult part. Personally, I mean, we're spenders. Uh, Professionally, we understand the merits of a budget. We understand that you must dial in expenses. But uh, I also don't think you need to keep a budget every month for the rest of your life. Yeah, you touched on some important things, right? I think I'll talk about the reasons why I'm anti-budget. And these reasons might make you think I'm pro-budget, right? Because it's it's slight differences in verbiage, but I think they matter 
exponentially. Budgeting is the worst way to refer to anything. Talk about the least fun thing you want people to do is like, hey, let's budget, right? Like, I even think it's just like a marketing problem. Like, intentional cash flow management is like, you know, intentionally allocating cash flow is a much better way to even think about the conversation. So, part of budgeting is just like, it just puts a bad taste in your mouth. It sounds like going to the dentist, right? So, first part, first issue with it's marketing, right? And just the way it's perceived. I mean, the second issue, Justin, is like, I agree with you. I think like I'm anti-budgeting indefinitely, right? Counting down to the penny every single month. If if there's a little bit of predictability uh, between your income and there's not a ton of changes month to month, right? If when you whenever you have big life transitions, adding a kid, adding an expense, adding a home, adding a second home, retiring, uh, sending a kid off to college, right? Those are great times that I would say check in with your budget and maybe do a few months to see how things change and shake out, but you know, if, if everything's kind of even keel and there's no drastic changes, analyzing it to the nth degree every single month isn't, you know, might not be a super worthwhile experience. I'm, I'm a bigger fan of like reverse budgeting, right? So like the idea of if you're intentional about the number you are saving and you feel good about that and have cash flow, it doesn't really like you're going to like, if you're saving 25, 30% of your income and you're young and you have a bunch of years or you've accumulated substantial assets, it doesn't really matter what you spend so long as you're saving appropriately, right? So rather than like deciding, hey, do I want to spend in this category or this category? Oh, I went over in eating out, but I was under in uh, travel or whatever. Like if you're saving enough, that's 90, 95% of the battle, right? So, so of course, you know, budgeting could make sense if you're not in a position to save enough and cash flow and, and bonuses are just evaporating as soon as you get them, right? That's a great opportunity to save. But a lot of our listeners, very conservative risk management approach, right? So they're under underspenders. Uh, so they're saving aggressively. So under underspending or aggressively saving and budgeting isn't really a worthwhile isn't really a worthwhile exercise because you're already doing the big thing that you need to be doing, which is setting aside cash, an aggressive amount of cash for your future, right? Because there's two benefits to there's two benefits to aggressive savings, right? It reduces the amount you need, right? If you're if you're saving it, you don't need to spend it, so your baseline expenses are lower, and you're accumulating for the future. So if you're going to do any form of budgeting, I think reverse budgeting, which is, okay, what percentage of my income do I need to save to retire or or give myself the future flexibility to do the things I want to do later on in life? That's, that's for me, a better question to, answer, to ask. I like the way you frame that. Where do you think this topic fits in with, was it, was it like a year ago we did a podcast, did a few articles, case studies on all those, I can't even remember who's New York Times or Bloomberg. They released this data that, you know, over half of millennials that make more than 250000 a year are living paycheck to paycheck. So these are millennials that are making 300000 a year that report living paycheck to paycheck. Another report recently, I think they put the number needed to feel comfortable or secure at like 280000 or something, a really large income. Are those topics tied to this topic? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say yes. Right. Cause like we've talked about this, but everyone should be living paycheck to paycheck. Right. Cause you're, cause, cause of being intentional with savings. Right. Like, so I'm pro, Hey, like, what do I need to save? Right. Like also there's, there's nuance there. The family that makes 280 a year that is fully funding 401ks and also contributing monthly to a brokerage account, but doesn't have any a ton of liquid cash sloshing around is very different than somebody who has 280, isn't doing any 401k contributions, 
and doesn't have any cash flow month to month. So like that's a nuance that I don't think was like recognized in that piece of research, but I do think it gets at the crux of kind of like what we're talking about is like optimizing for future optionality and like giving every dollar a job, right? So like, I think that that has merit of like budgeting and like, I, I do think there's like, there's an alignment component that makes budgeting valuable. So like making sure that your expenses are reflecting like what you say is important to you personally. I think that that can be valuable, but, but right, this, this kind of ties in because it's basically saying, Hey, how are we intentional with the money we spend and how are we intentional with the saving? But more important, I, I think the hierarchy is if you're saving what you need to, you have a lot more flexibility in everything else. Just kind of frees you up to not have to think about that. I like that. Uh, I like Ramit Sethi's question that he asks, what do you, how does he phrase it? What do you really enjoy spending money on? That's a really helpful question. Uh, and we all have answers to that. Jared, you have things that you're extremely cheap on, and then you have other areas of your life that you're extravagant. Tangible example, right? Like my wife and I have one car. We lived internationally for a little while. So we sold one of our cars because it wasn't worth having. And we came back and we we're like, hey, we could totally make this work. And I probably have a car's worth of bicycles and bicycle stuff in my house, right? And so it's well, just- Probably. Jared, you do have a car's worth of bikes. So yeah, that's just one of those things where, you know, hey, having an additional car when we both work from home most of the time isn't isn't worth it for me. But having, you know, being able to to go big with cycling stuff is. What about you, Justin? Do you have anything like that? Yeah, you know, I mean, very similar. I'm driving a super old Honda Civic right now. And I want to clarify that. So there's a lot of financial planners that that make a million dollars a year that have a seven-figure income that drive a horrible car because it's kind of the financial planner thing to do because they want to plow more money into index funds and stuff like that. And yeah, I, I think that's great. But I drive a bad car because I'm really extravagant and spend a lot in other areas uh, like sporting season tickets to different sports events, um, golf, a lot of money on golf, club dues, stuff like that. So it's not this conscious decision of I'm a financial planner and I know a car is a bad investment. No, there's a ton of things in your monthly budget right now that are terrible investments and that's okay. There's a lot of things that make life worth living that are not going to make you wealthier 10 years from now. And the point is, it's good to be extravagant in the areas that you enjoy and then be kind of ruthless and really frugal in the areas that you just don't care at all about. Yeah. And I think that connects to why we're anti-budget is because the, the budget mentality, if you will, is, hey, let's minimize expenses across every single category, which I don't think is a helpful framework. Minimize it across categories that don't add value or bring you purpose or joy, but be, you know, like you said, and Ramit says, just, be, you know, spend extravagantly in, in categories that do matter to you. And I think the other, like the final thing that I don't like about budgeting is it's fixated it, like it's kind of rooted in a scarcity mentality, right? The fixation is I have a finite amount of money. How do I basically optimize that, right? Where, where I think a lot of people, especially younger people, like the better thing to think about is, okay, how do I grow my income? So like, I don't think budgeting is bad, but I think it focuses on like, hey, this is all there's going to be. So how do we, how do we optimize it, right? And, and would your human capital be better spent thinking about how do I grow my income? Do I get a side hustle? Do I negotiate a raise at work? Do I change employers, right? All of those things, I think, are, are much higher level questions that can move the needle and that, you know, 
figuring out how to grow your income 10% a year is going to be drastically better than, you know, cutting the, cutting the Netflix subscription ever, you know, three out of every six months, cause there's nothing on there you want to watch and then turning it back on and off. Right. So like, I just think it's, you know, it can n- not be a good use of time and, and kind of create a scarcity mentality. That's right. If you are if you are really young and really far away from financial independence, finding an extra thousand a month in your budget is a you know it's a it's a good helpful exercise. But figuring out a way to double your income in the next five years is a dramatically more powerful exercise with dramatically better results. And again, Jared, I'd reiterate. We did a bunch of research kind of on the people we work with and that Bloomberg article. And I mean, we found that for most people, unless they're getting family gifts from their parents, they don't really start plowing away significant brokerage dollars on top of 401k contributions until income gets to about 500,000 a year. And so grow your income significantly more powerful. Yeah. So in summary, a few reasons why we're anti-budget anti and you may debate the merits of that, but we're bigger fans of like reverse budgeting, just like getting the big things right and thinking about everything else, you know, being, we're also big fans of, Hey, being extravagant and excessive in categories that really make a difference to you. We're also big fans of an abundance mentality, right? Not only fixating on cutting expenses, but growing your income. And I realize those are subtle nuances and you may say, Hey, that you, you do kind of see the value in, in, budgeting. Yes, we do, but we also think it's a really incomplete way to manage your family's cash flow to optimize your life. Okay, Justin, we went over 10 minutes. We'll have to be quicker on the next two. Okay. Next topic, college football coaching buyouts. Where do you want to start with this one? I mean, I don't know if I'm willing to go less than 10 minutes on this topic, Uh, but we have to start with Jimbo Fisher. We have to start with Texas A&M. So A&M fires Jimbo Fisher Completely valid, good cause there. But they are paying Jimbo, I believe it's $76 million to stop coaching. For context, this is more than three times larger than the largest buyout in college football coaching firing history. So Gus Malzahn, I believe, was the highest ever in the low to mid-20 millions. Um Jimbo is getting paid more than three times that amount to leave College Station. Jared, where should we go from there? I'd be curious your thoughts because I just I think that is insane. It's like it's like you like, and you may have a different opinion than me. It's like somebody getting promoted to officer at Exxon Mobil and then getting seven years of like RSUs, and then if you like. Like even before they vest, like you essentially get all of them. But the, also the RSUs, the percentage of your income is just multiples and multiples. It's really weird from an incentive perspective, right? Like I remember when the contract came out, it was like 10 years, fully guaranteed. Just like no no other marketplace is like that except for professional sports. And yes, I realize like there's a shelf life component. But man, is it just insanity. And And then I guess the other like the other thing that makes it interesting is like with NIL, like the capital allocation decision that universities are making also kind of changes the math a little bit. And I know there's like rules to like how much universities can be directly involved in that, but it does really seem like a crazy use of capital to me. I'm so glad you brought that up. The incentive structure in college football coaching seems so wildly off right now. 
So two things. First, college head coach positions have always felt like a horrible, miserable life. It, it, I don't know how these people stay married. I don't know how they have any involvement in their kids' lives. It, it feels like a horrible life. And so, Jared, that was true basically forever. And there was this dynamic where it was always tempting for successful college coaches to go to the NFL because you don't have to recruit in the NFL. And so in college, you have to be on 12 months a year, 52 weeks a year. You cannot take time off. But, Jared, something else happened, and that is NIL, Transfer Portal. College found a way to somehow make the head coach position significantly worse today than it was even five years ago. And it was a horrible job five years ago, in, in my opinion. And so the incentive structure is interesting. I'm going to mention this real quick. Billy Napier's at Florida. Florida is awful. Um, Billy Napier appears to, you know, be headed towards a pretty quick exit at some point in the next 12 months. I'm guessing he's going to get fired. Florida is not good. Uh, they're, they're significantly below their SEC comrades, and they're also significantly trailing Florida State, their in-state rival. Billy Napier signed a guaranteed $50 million contract. Does Billy Napier even care that Florida sucks? Let me put this like even more like he has little economic incentive for Florida to be good. Yes, he has almost none. Right. And of course, like the way you become a college coach is by being a competitor by nature. But like if you think about economic incentives, right? It's like going to work every day and like your next five years of salary are guaranteed regardless of how your company does. Like, yeah, like I'm rooting for them and the time's going to go by much faster if I'm engaged. But like, you're right. Like the, the, the value proposition is not compelling. And like, here's the other thing. If you think about, let's take a conference like the SEC, for example, everybody's mad about losing records. But the problem is if you play most of your games in a really hard conference, there's a finite amount of wins that can go around. Yeah, that's right. It's a zero sum game. It's a zero sum game. Like I win, you lose, right? So for all of these coaches across the SEC to just expect to be over 500 every year and, and to guarantee coach, guarantee coaches salaries to coax people out of other conferences or out of the ranks or, or promote them to, to be in the conference and try to do that. It's, it's, it's just mathematically ludicrous, right? So I, I think we got way, I, I don't know where you go from there. Like if I'm an AM fan, um, I'm I'm pretty bummed, right? And luckily the fan base is so robust and the you know, the resources are there to weather this storm and come out, you know, on the other side. And quite frankly, I think it was the right thing, right? Like hopefully they learned their lesson this time because like the on-field performance as a result of that, you know, that guaranteed salary wasn't wasn't compelling relative to the resources and expectations of that program. I know. I mean, here's the thing. A&M has resources that rival a first world country's GDP. Uh, people think the private schools in Texas have a lot of money. Uh, and yeah, I mean, SMU has more money. TCU has more money than a lot of other schools. A&M could split up into eight different universities. All eight of them would completely dwarf SMU. That's how powerful and how much money A&M has, UT and A&M. They're in a completely different stratosphere than everyone else in college football. But also this SEC media deal, they're making twice as much as Big 12 and ACC schools. And so they're going to pay Jimbo, I think, like $19 million in the first year. 
but then they're really just cash flowing this on an annual basis and the SEC media deal will just pay it out. Um, so kind of amazing to see that. But Jared, last thought here, your point, incentive structure, where do you go from here? Do you write someone else another 80, 90, $100 million guaranteed contract? I mean, I look at 2019 at LSU, that was arguably the greatest college football season that any team has ever had. No offense at all to Coach O, but I don't think Ed Orgeron uh, was a good coach. I think Ed Orgeron had an incredible defensive coordinator, an incredible offensive coordinator, so a world-class staff, and then just enormous amounts of talent. And so, I don't know, it's almost like you want a somewhat responsible manager of an organization and then just get a great offensive coordinator, get a great defensive coordinator and buy a bunch of players. So I don't know what college coaching is, where the contracts are going to go, but your point about incentives and just how horribly this has failed, it's pretty wild. Yeah, it will be interesting to see how it evolves. But dude, I think like the last thing is like, like you can coach indefinitely. Right. Like, like there's not like, like I get like professional players making a lot of money, having a lot of it be guaranteed. Right. Like you could like at any play, you could have your knee hit incorrectly and that could be the end of your end of your human capital. Right. As you know it. And if you haven't played in the NFL long enough, you're gone from a pension. If you're a coach and you get fired for having a bad season, like there are so many opportunities. Like you could, you know, you could probably make a six figure income coaching six, a high school football in Texas. So like, you're going to be fine. Yeah, that's a great point. And so I, I do think it's insane in light of like the how replaceable they are and how transient they can be with their skill set. So yeah, so it's fascinating. It's all out of whack, but I do I do agree with you. Like having a more balanced approach just seems like much like you know we're big proponents of diversification on this podcast, and it seems like a lot of people are overweighting to a head coach. And like you said, between the transfer portal and NIL, there's so many things that going go into being able to retain people and make it interesting. And I, I think a head coach is part of that, but like a head coach cannot do all that stuff. So just paying that person a crap ton of money just seems like a especially a, a, a ton of money that's guaranteed seems like a low, low use of uh low value use of university capital. Absolutely. Next thing. Um, final thing we're talking about a looming CPA shortage, Justin, you want to frame up why, uh, why we think that is. Okay. So this topic is if you are wanting to find a CPA to do your tax return and you're wanting to find a great CPA and you're hoping to be able to pull this off for a thousand dollars or less to get your return done. I don't think you're going to be able to find that. And I don't think it's been findable for years. Uh, so this topic was spurred on. Uh, Jamie Hopkins had a tweet uh, that was basically citing a stat from Ohio. So in the state of Ohio, registered CPAs, about half of them are 60 years old or older. Um, Two thirds of them are over the age of 50. So Jamie was saying he's been worried about this for years. Jamie is a CPA, by the way. Um, people are not coming into the profession. Um, and it, it, he also said he sees CPA businesses that get listed with brokers and they can't even sell because no one's there to do the work. And so 
let's pause here. That's that's kind of my thesis. I fully agree with Jamie. We've talked about this for years. It's extraordinarily hard to find a CPA who is responsive, not severely overworked. Um, where's where do we go from here, Jared? Yeah, I mean, I guess we just unpack why we think that is right. Like, I I agree with you. I think there's a looming CPA crisis, if you will, and our profession has some similarities, right? If there's a Venn diagram, there's definitely, there's definitely some similar issues. Uh, but I think, you know, the CPA, uh, tax prep profession has it even worse off. I think a couple of the big problems are like the hurdles to get in, right? Getting the CPA. Oftentimes you have to have a year of additional schooling. There's like the, the schooling education and testing requirements just make the hurdles great. But I think like most importantly is like the economics are not compelling right? Like you have a one transaction It you know, you do tax prep and that's really it. And you don't really communicate, like you're paid on an hourly basis. So the client doesn't really have an incentive to reach out for you for proactive tax planning, which quite frankly is the thing you need as much as tax preparation. Right. Um, but there's a weird incentive structure to where the client wants you to do things as fast as possible. Uh, you don't communicate with them on an ongoing basis, then they randomly dump everything related to their financial situation to you. And you, you know, you have six weeks, uh, you know, post, post end of the year to tax filing deadline. That's what, 12, 16 weeks, maybe, uh, where a crazy percentage of the volume of your work is. So, you know, there's not, there's not an economic incentive for an ongoing relationship. It's really binge purge, i.e. like so much of the work happens in a really short period of time and then there's not a lot going on. Um, and it's just hard to get in the door. Justin, what would you say are some of the big issues as to as to why you think there's a CPA looming shortage? I think sharp CPAs are going way up market. So they're doing more full-time consulting work and charging, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50,000 a year for that work. They're not doing $800 tax returns. And so what a lot of the public wants is I want to see a great CPA to do my tax return, but the public doesn't want to pay $5,000 for that. Um, this is kind of a can of worms that I won't even go into. I don't even understand why CPAs don't start RIAs and combine wealth management with tax, which is essentially, Jared, what you and I have done. We partner with CPAs that do a ton of our clients' returns. And that's a drastically more compelling uh, service offering. It's also way more value to the end client. Like you mentioned, tax planning, proactive tax planning is where the value is. Uh, for most returns, TurboTax can help you get that done. So I think that's a huge issue, Jared. I think great CPAs are going up market um, and they're not really wanting to do a tax return for $900. Uh, because they'll need a thousand clients to do that. So the main problem right now, if you want a great CPA, how are you, it's hard to find one that just answers the phone and re responds to emails really quickly. And that's because they need a thousand or more clients to make a decent living. So that entire business model, unless you go way up market and charge 10, 20, 30, 40,000 a year, it doesn't add up. Yeah. And it, a, even a bigger accounting firm that offers like multi-service, like, you know, basic tax preparation, those people get poached for the business lines that are more profitable to the firm. 
right? So like, even if you use a bigger company, like, you know, the bottom of their barrel people are likely the ones servicing and kind of managing that relationship. And, and the good ones will get plucked into more profitable revenue streams. But the problem, the other problem is like, the economics for being an independent are tough, right? It's, it's really like, you know, in this day and age, it's really easy to start a business, but like with a business with that low of a revenue per client, right? You're talking about, Hey, if you're doing 800 returns, you got to get a hundred clients or you got to get a hundred clients, $800 a return. If you get a hundred clients, that's 80 grand, right? Before any expenses, right? So like you as an independent, you have to have hundreds of hundreds of clients. And so to be able to do hundreds of returns for different people, you have to be really systematized. And that probably requires a big infrastructure investment. So like the economics for just, you know, setting up your independent tax prep business are really not compelling if you're just doing the most basic generic returns. You're exactly right, Jared. And I feel like we've created kind of a great solution to this. And we're essentially guarding it for our clients. And so it's a really difficult topic. If you're wanting a great CPA to do a return and you're not wanting to pay five, ten thousand dollars or more, I don't think you're going to find a solution there. And I think it's going to continue to get worse. CPAs are going to go do more valuable things. But I hope a CPA is listening to this and says, oh no, I've figured it out. Reach out to us. We would love to hear from you. I'm, you know, we... We have clients who need tons of uh, across the spectrum who need lots of tax work. And, you know, I mean, so, so like that's the bad news is, you know, there's tailwinds with the profession. I think the and, or there's headwinds with the profession. The good news is people who do this well are going to, are going to crush it. Right. Like there's so much opportunity. If you, if you figure it out, like it's really hard, right. For all the reasons we stated, but if you figure it out, you're going to crush it. So if you're a CPA who hears this and dis- or if you disagree with us, we'd love to hear from you. But uh, Justin, that about wraps it up for, up for today. Uh, covered it 30 minutes on the dot. So well done. Uh, questions, feedback, ideas for future episodes, podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.